It's good to have all of you here. I'm glad you're here. Glad you're watching us online, joining us. Hey, for all those of you that are here for the first time today, maybe someone brought you or you just were interested and you, you came in to hang out with us today. If you're just logging on online for the first time here to Vibrant Church, all of those of you, we wanna give you a big welcome home. Come on, church, welcome them today. So glad you're here. It's gonna be a good day. I think we're gonna have an amazing time together. I wanna welcome you to our series on the book of Revelation. I don't know about you, but I've been having a lot of fun uh, deep diving into this incredible book about God's prophetic future for the earth and for his people and for mankind. And I really believe the times that we're living in are, are becoming HD in prophetic fulfillment. I think we're seeing things in our world right now. There's things in our society there's things that are, that, are, that are coming into full color as we're looking at the lens of scripture and saying, oh wow, we're kind of, of here. Wow, this is kind of real that we are. It takes times like these to awaken us to the reality that we are living in the last days. Amen. Do you know that we're living in the last days, everybody? Come on, can I give you some good news? Jesus is coming again soon, y'all. If that's not good news to you, then you're in the right place today. Because by the end of today, I promise you it's gonna be good news to your life. But I'm so, so glad you're here for this part of our series. If you got your note sheet, get it out. Uh, we're continuing our series on Revelation. If you're online, download the note sheet. The online host will drop a link there in the chat box for you. Today, we kind of turned the corner into Revelation 17. In this chapter, this is one of those passages where there are some incredible things that I really believe God has to say to us. How many of you know that places have a way of creating mental pictures in our mind. Certain places when you think about them. So if I said today, think about the city of Las Vegas, what kind of pictures would come to, well, you know, the good kind of pictures that come to your mind. If I said the city of Washington, D.C., what, what kind of pictures would come to your mind as you think about the city of Washington, D.C.? Well, there's a city in the book of Revelation that is, is kind of obscured to us in 2020, but it's, it's absolutely pivotal to the end times into the book of Revelation. It's a city called Babylon. Everybody say Babylon. What, do, what pictures come to your mind when you think of that sinful city called Babylon? Babylon. If you take a look at Revelation 17 and 18 like we're going to do today, God says, here's the picture I want you to get concerning this very important city in the end of days. Now, if you really want a picture of Babylon in the Bible, you have to go all the way back, not to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, but you have to go all the way back to the first book of the Bible in Genesis. In Genesis 11, there's a, a place, there's a city in Genesis 11 called Babel. And Babel had a great tower. Many of you are kind of familiar with that story. And when you look at Babel, you can quickly see the similarities between Babel and the civilization of Babylon at the end of days. Understand, the heart that is in Babylon, the culture that is in Babylon starts in this place called Babel. So before we get into Revelation 17 and 18 today, I want us to journey back, build a foundation off of Genesis chapter 11 so you understand where I'm coming from. In Genesis 11, the Bible says that this is the people of Babel, so they said to each other, I want you to notice how many times you see the, the phrases, let us, just watch this. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly, right? He, they said, they used bricks instead of stone. Now, why did they use bricks instead of stone to build the tower? It's so that they could say that they did it. 
They didn't want stone that God created. They wanted bricks that they made so that they could say, look what we did. So it says that they used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they said, come, let us, everybody say, let us. Let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we might make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the people were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speak in the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, God said, let us, who's he talking to? The Trinity. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from, from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel because there, were, there is where the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, I want you to notice this phrase. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna come back to this in a little bit. From there, help me out everybody, the Lord did what? He scattered them over the face of the whole earth. And then you go from Genesis 11 back to the book of Revelation. Understand, the spirit that was in this place called Babel was scattered over the entire earth. This arrogant spirit that is godless, that wants to do everything without the authority of God, God, it, it was completely scattered over the earth. And how many believe it is still scattered all over the earth? It all started right here. The spirit in this place that's called Babylon in Revelation, which, which many people call the cradle of civilization, was actually there in Babylon. It, it, it emerged in the earth through Babylon, is the spirit of mankind. It is our civilization, our organization. It is our culture setting ourselves up as God. And how many can see today permeating our culture is this humanistic philosophy that God out there does not exist, but we ourselves are God. It all started back here and is permeated, and God is showing us in Revelation, this is going to be the pervasive, or prevailing culture of the day, setting ourselves up as the supreme authority in the universe. That's what this is all about. I want you to see that it's more than a place. Babylon is an attitude. Babylon is a system. It's this attitude of let us make bricks so we can be proud of ourselves, so we can say that we did it. We were self-made. We did it without the help of God. Let us build a great city so we can look at ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let us not be scattered over the whole earth, but they were. And today, we're gonna to look at God's description of Babylon, and then we're gonna look at God's perspective of this place, this system, this culture of Babylon. First, we're gonna look at God's description of Babylon in Revelation chapter 17. And as we walk through this description in chapter 17, it's gonna sound more and more familiar to you as you compare it to the times that we're living in right now. You're gonna see more and more how this place has something to say about our lives today, about how God wants to work in us every day about who we are and our true identity. Now, anyone in John's day who read about Babylon, that name would have been just as familiar to them as Washington, D.C. or Las Vegas would be to us. They would have immediately 
pictured some things when that name Babylon was, when they saw it or they read that or they heard about that because the Old Testament is filled with pictures, not just of the Tower of Babel, but it's filled with pictures of this very real place that existed in the Old Testament called Babylon. Now, you might remember from reading the Old Testament that Babylon was one of the countries that attacked Israel in the Old Testament. They actually attacked Israel, they took the people of Israel captive, and they kept them captive in a foreign land as exiles for years until God allowed them to go back to their homeland of Israel. You might remember, this is one of the countries that Ezekiel and many other prophets talk about as being one of the centers or sources of evil in the world of that day, in the Old Testament. And so, they would have clearly understood that this was a picture of a place that set itself up against God. This was a place where commercially and socially and religiously, it was in opposition to God and everything that he was and who he is. A famous theologian once said that Babylon is entrenched worldly resistance to God. It's mankind who has decided that we're gonna dig our heels in and we're gonna say, this is who we're gonna be and we're gonna set, I'm gonna set, our, we're gonna set ourselves up against God. How many believe that our world is screaming this right now? You can see it all over the world right now. You can even see it in our own life sometimes. You might remember from reading the New Testament that there's three channels of evil in the world today. There are three ways that temptation and evil come into our lives, and that is the world, the flesh, and the devil. First, the devil, Satan, and the way he tempts us. Then, the flesh, that's the war that's going on inside of us that we just, we just can't say, well, the devil made me do it. I feel sorry for the devil sometimes. I think he gets blamed for a lot of stuff he didn't even do. We slip and do stupid things and make dumb decisions and then we want to pass the buck on the devil. And poor devil, he's like, I didn't do anything. I wasn't even there. Right? We can't sit here and say, oh, the devil made me do it. No, no. How many of you know we make our own choices? And so then there's the world. That's the world we live in, the philosophy of it, the direction of it, the system of it, the culture of it. Babylon is a picture of the world. This system that we all live in today that sets itself up against God. And Revelation 17 begins to walk through this description of what Babylon is like. And you're going to recognize five parts of this civilization that sets itself up against God. And you're going to see as we walk through this that this is what is all around us right now. That, that you and I have to live in and live with every day of our lives. And it keeps us from really worshiping God like we want to. And it keeps us from really focusing our lives on him like we really want to. And so let's look at these three pictures, or, or excuse me, five pictures, uh, five descriptions that God gives of this, this system, this attitude, this, this cultural thing called Babylon. Are you ready? Everybody say yes. The first picture that God gives, and it's in your notes, is a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. There And I'll show you what I mean. In Revelation 17, we pick it up in verses 3 and 4. John said that an angel carried me away in the spirit to a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. How many of you know this ain't a woman you won't mess with right here? I'm just telling you, right? This woman, 
that sitting on a scarlet beast is a very clear picture of what Babylon is. Even the detail that God is giving John of the color scarlet, the color red, Throughout the Bible, and especially in the book of Revelation, it's a picture of Satan. It is a picture of, of sin. And so this is a reminder. This first picture is a reminder. Write this down. It's a reminder that its father is the devil. Satan is the father of this system, this, this, this spiritual place, this, 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 this uh, culture of the world that we live in. Satan, the source of all evil, is the power that is behind the world system and what's going on. Can I just tell you today that we war not against flesh and blood and the things that we see happening in our world today is not that we point a finger at people. No, there is something that is our enemy. There's someone that is our enemy that is at work behind all of this unrest and all of this chaos and all of this violence and all of this hatred and nonsense and that is Satan himself. Can you say amen? It's all his idea. And we gotta be careful about this. Listen, we shouldn't blame the devil for our choice to sin, but it is important that we name the devil as the source of evil. The fact that I choose to sin, it ain't the devil's fault. It's my choice. And that's why God holds me accountable for it. But it's important to realize that the source of the evil going on in this world right now is Satan himself. The source of anything in this world that sets itself up against God is Satan himself. He is the father of the system of this world. And let me just talk to, to, to you men uh, for a moment. All the men in the house, come on everybody, all the men in the house say amen, you hear? Let me just talk to the men in the house. Do you remember the first time you looked in the mirror and saw your father looking back at you? Do you remember that? Do you remember, my, my, my brother, do you remember when you said something and it was like your father's words coming out of your mouth? Yeah, somebody got it right there. Oh, yeah, I remember. It was, was kind of scary, wasn't it? Why does that happen? Don't miss this. It's because we tend to identify with and eventually look like whoever our father is. And if Satan is the father of this world system, guess what this world looks like? Because Satan is a liar, guess what this world is filled with? Liars. Because Satan is the one who twists whatever is good, guess what this world is filled with? People who twist whatever is good. Because Satan comes to accuse, this world is filled with critics, people who love to accuse and destroy other people's lives for sport. As you look at the world, it's not too hard to see the character of Satan in it. Are you hearing what I'm saying? But you and I are believers. You and I are people of God. We're entirely different in this world. You see, we know Jesus Christ. And because we know Christ, watch, we are looking more and more like our heavenly father. Come on, we're not, we're not of this world. We're of a different world. We're, we're looking more like him in the way that we love people. We're looking more like him in the way we care about what's happening in this world and what's going on in the lives of other people because that's what our heavenly father does to us. That's how he treats us and that's the difference. That's what Babylon looks like. It looks like its father. 
And then we see this in, in verse four. The woman was also dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold and precious stones and pearls. And what does this show us? This is the second picture that's God's giving us about the system of this world, Babylon. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet. So you see this lavishness in this place called Babylon, glittering with gold and precious stones and pearls. What is God communicating to us with this picture of the world in which we live right now? It's communicating that the world system, its focus is materialism. Any of this looking familiar to anyone? As we walk through what Babylon is and where it is, we're, we're, we're going to past, we're going to present, we're going to future fulfillments of what this city is all about. And when you look at Revelation and when it was written, it was pretty evident during that day of John that Rome was the Babylon of that day. It held the power of all the world, the Roman Empire, and it was the center of global materialism. We could go list after list after list of the kind of material waste that was part of the Roman Empire. In fact, one of the favorite drinks at lavish parties in Rome back in the day was the drinking of pearls. They would literally take expensive pearls and they would melt them down with vinegar and they would put it in a drink and they would drink the liquid pearls that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars in our money today. Why? Just because they could. Just to do it. Just to say, hey, I can spend anything that I want to spend. I can waste whatever I want to waste. Let me ask you, do you see any of that kind of spirit in our world today? Yes. It's the spirit of materialism. And that's what it looks like. And in verse 4, it goes on to say that she held a golden cup in her hand. This is the third picture that God is painting for us about the world system that we live in called Babylon. Just very simply, the third picture that she held a golden cup in her hand. Again, those who had read the Old Testament in that day and who were very familiar with the Old Testament, they would have immediately understood that what this vision was all about. Because Jeremiah chapter 51 is a prophecy of the physical downfall of the first Babylon the one that took Israel captive. That Babylon that eventually God released his people from and let them go back to the promised land. There was a prophecy in the book of Jeremiah about the fact that the physical Babylon would someday fall and it would never rise again. See, it's not too difficult as you read through these chapters to see the, 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 the parallels here in Revelation that John is talking about a spiritual Babylon that's going to fall and never rise again. So in the Old Testament, there was a physical, real Babylon that was a global empire that was ruthless and evil that God prophesied would fall and never rise again, and it did. But here in Revelation, we see a parallel. John's not talking here, and God's not revealing to us a physical location. He's revealing to us a spiritual Babylon in the last days that's going to fall and never rise again. In fact, in Jeremiah 51, let me show you in verse 7, this Old Testament prophecy. Notice the similarities to this, to this scarlet, uh, this woman dressed in scarlet sitting on a beast in Revelation. Babylon was a what? A gold cup. In the Lord's hand, she made the whole earth drunk. And the nations drank her wine. Therefore, they have gone 
mad. Can anybody look at the world today and say, everybody's losing their mind? This is what happens in the culture of Babylon. Go back to verse four in Revelation. Look what he says. She held a gold cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. What is God telling us about the system of our world and the, the culture of the spirit of Babylon that is prevalent in the last days? It's te- God's telling us that the character of Babylon is immorality. It's immorality. And the kind of immorality that not only impacts its own life, but it also influences the whole world. That's the kind of place that Babylon is. And in verse five, this is really interesting because John says this, the name written on her forehead was a mystery. On her forehead was written Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. What a picture. So what is the business of Babylon? If we know the character of Babylon is immorality, what is the business of Babylon? Write this down. The business of it, or the title of it, mother of prostitutes. The the business of it is prostitution. Write that down in your notes. Some of you have been coming, I know, to Vibrant for 10 to 12 years, and I can almost bet that's the first time you've ever written the word prostitution as a fill-in-the-blank in church. (laughs) We're just keeping it real. Prostitution, that is its business. In fact, the prostitutes in Rome back in John's day, they each had a name, an alias that would be written on a sign on their foreheads. This is, this is the picture, it's a parallel. So as they saw the, as, they, as people in John's day saw this picture that they're reading about, there was a name on Babylon's forehead on this prostitute's forehead. So this would, this would not have been a surprise to the people who had read the Old Testament. And many of you who have read the Old Testament, this picture of a harlot is not a surprise to you either. It's used often in the Old Testament. In Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah talks about the nation of Tyre being a harlot because of their unfaithfulness to God. Nineveh, in the, in, in the prophet Nahum, he, he talked about Nineveh being a prostitute because of their unfaithfulness that they had shown toward God. In Ezekiel 16, even Jerusalem, even Israel itself is called unfaithful and called a prostitute and a harlot because of the unfaithfulness she had shown God to the one who loved her most. In fact, Ezekiel 16 and verse 15, this is what it says. It says, but you trusted, talking to Israel, the prophet Ezekiel said, but you trusted in your beauty and you used your fame to become a what? A prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his. Why does God use this picture? Why here in Revelation does God use this picture of a harlot? I think it's a couple of reasons. One is that with prostitution, follow me, with prostitution, the relationship is commercial. He's talking about what this world system is like. That's what the world is like. The relationships are all commercial. They're not real. They're fake. It's all about what I can get out of it. It's all about how I can elevate myself in the relationship. It's all about how I can be strengthened through this relationship in my position, in my job, in my finances. How can I leverage this relationship? It's all commercial. 
Why do you think we put a gravity and a sobriety and an intensity on the fact that you need to be careful single person who you date and who you tie your soul with? That it's not somebody who's entering into a commercial relationship with you. You want someone that God has for you who will enter into covenant relationship with you. Where it's not self-serving, it's self-sacrificial. It's good preaching, y'all. I'm just telling you, some people are getting set free right now. Some people are texting them right now. I, we're breaking up. You're done. <laughs> Pastor Jason said you were hashtag commercial. <laughs> hashtag over it. Hashtag covenant. Hashtag vibrant church. <laughs> Welcome home. <laughs> I think the second reason that God uses this, this graphic picture of prostitution is I think he uses it, we, I think we use this even, we use this phrase even when we talk about somebody prostituting themselves to do a number of things. Prostitution, listen to me, prostitution is something that, that is, it, it's taking something that God made to be good and perfect and to glorify him and wasting it to do evil. That's what God is saying. I gave you, talking about humanity, I gave you good gifts. I gave you this opportunity. I gave you this nation. I gave you this influence. And instead of using it to influence the world, you prostituted it. It's the difference of values. Everybody say values. God looks at us with incredible value, but the world does not. The world looks at you like a commodity how it can waste and spend you and leave you in a waste heap. God looks at you and I as believers and says, you were bought with a price, but the world looks at you and says, I can get you wholesale. Two different, two different ways of looking at life. Anybody glad this morning that you were bought with a price, the blood of Jesus Christ, amen. He gave his life for you, don't ever forget it. Don't ever waste that. And then in verse six, John says, I saw the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people. The blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. And when I saw her, I was greatly astonished. And so here's the next picture that God is painting for us of this place called Babylon. Is the fifth picture is that she is drunk with the blood of the saints. What is God communicating with us about the end time Babylon, spirit of Babylon in our world today. Its religion is anti-God. Now listen to me very carefully. I didn't say they were atheists. I didn't say that they just don't believe in God. No, no, no. This is, we know he's real, but we are against him. This is the spirit of our world today. It's anti-God. It's not just ignoring people of faith and letting them do what they want. No, it's martyring them. Why? Because they can't stand to be in the presence of truth when they are living a lie. You look at this description and you hear of the materialism and the commercialism and the religion that is anti-God. And come on, it begins to feel a little familiar, doesn't it? Listen, if you've been wondering through this whole series, well, I wonder if we really are in the last days. 
Today is a wake-up call for you. What is this place? When, when is this place? Where is this place? To understand this place called Babylon, we have to understand what the Bible says. We have to understand how the Bible says it was built and why it was built and the beast that this city, this woman, is resting on that John saw. Well, the, the angel who revealed this to John also explained this to John. And let me show you what I mean. In verse six, the angel says, uh, John said, I saw the woman was drunk with the blood of God's people, the blood of these who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. And the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain it. I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has, this is important, Notice this, this beast has seven heads and 10 horns. The beast, which you saw once was, now is not, and yet will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are the seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. This is very important that you understand that. Five of them have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for only a little while. So now you understand the whole thing. The mystery is made clear. Everybody say seven kings, seven hills. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago as we talked about another beast in Revelation that had seven heads. The, these seven hills are very, very familiar even to those of us today who understand some history. When we think of a city and we think of seven hills, if you know history, your mind goes to Rome. Everybody say Rome. Why? Because the city of Rome was built on seven hills. This is a city in John's day that was persecuting Christians at a record pace. So it's not too hard to immediately think about that city of Rome. But is that all it's about? No, because if you look at these kingdoms, the first kingdom and the last kingdom, and you think about how earthly kingdoms come and go throughout history, as God describes Babylon, he's picturing for us the fact that kingdoms have come and kingdoms have gone on this earth. If you miss the point that God, when God talks about Babylon, that he's talking about every civilization that has existed in the earth, that has set itself up against God, then you've missed the whole point of the book of Revelation. If you miss the point that he talks about, when, when God talks about Babylon, he's talking about what you and I face today in the system of this world. There is a system just like this in the world today. And if you miss that point, you miss the whole point of the book of Revelation. But also, he talks about this place called Babylon setting itself up against God. If you miss the point that there will be a final kingdom and a great final ruler that will come, it only makes sense that there, God will finally destroy all evil in that final day, then you've missed the point of the book of Revelation. It means all those things, all, it means all of those things as God talks about how he's gonna destroy evil. 
Now, let me give you a couple of, a few other insights that are not in your notes about this beast that we see in, in verses six through 10. It says that this beast with seven heads and 10 horns, this is interesting. You heard me kind of point it out. The beast once was, now is not, and will come. Does, who does that sound like, everybody? Satan. Satan once was, now is not, and yet will come. Pretty good picture of Satan. He once was. He was the ruler of this earth. Now he is not. Why? Because Jesus defeated him on the cross. And when Jesus died on the cross, he destroyed the power of Satan once and for all. Yet he will come. He gets one final grasp at the world at the end of it all. He's, he, he's going to lose, but God's plan for it is that he is going to be allowed this one final shot. We read about it as we studied through the book of Revelation, how God's going to defeat evil once and for all as Satan makes this final grasp on the world. We also saw from that description in those scriptures that the beast will make war against the lamb. And we looked at that last week. Remember we saw last week that right up into the very end, Satan and much of humanity in this world keep battling God as if they're going to win. That's one of the great mysteries I think in the world to me is how people fight against God thinking that they're more powerful, deceived into believing they're more powerful. But then it gives this interesting fact that the beast, the beast, here's what's, here's what's fascinating is that we see that the beast will ultimately ruin Babylon. The beast itself will destroy its own system. Where do you see that? Let me show you in verse 12. The 10 horns you saw are what? 10 kings who have not yet received the kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They will have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. Can somebody say amen? And with him will be his called, his chosen, his faithful followers. Anybody glad you're in the middle of all that, right? But then we see it switch into verse 15 and 17. It says, then the angel said to me, John said, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. And they will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. And they will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For, for God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose. By agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. Now listen, the beast will ruin Babylon. The beast will ruin its own world system. And notice a couple of things. One is that the harlot is destroyed by the beast. So, so watch. Evil inevitably and eventually evil consumes itself. It has to. That's what evil is. It, it turns on itself. And second, the Bible tells us God put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose. 
You see, we read these ugly, horrible pictures of the beast and with these horns and these heads, and yet God put it into the heart of the beast to accomplish his own purpose. Remember the four words we talked about last week? Come on, God is in control. He is in control. Even in this last grasp that Satan has, God shows himself to be the only one that is in control and in charge. Let me just tell you how powerful God is. God is so powerful, he even uses evil itself to defeat evil by putting it into evil's heart what it's gonna do. Amen. That's how powerful God is. One more thing to notice about this description of Babylon is that Babylon is a beautiful place to live. If you made up a list of 100 top, top 100 cities in the United States today or in the world today, Babylon would definitely be in the top 10. It might even be number one. Look at all the commercial uh, success. Look at all the wealth. Wealth for everyone. Needs are catered to. It's the center of power. People like living in Babylon. It appeals to their sense of pride. It gratifies their need for pleasure. But aren't you glad that God had a different plan for us? Babylon is the opposite of God's plan. Let me show you what I mean real quick. Write this down in your notes. Babylon, the woman, is the unholy opposite of the bride of Christ. And we're gonna look at that in a few chapters, by the way. Babylon, the city, the woman you saw in, in verses 18 is the great city that rules over the kingdoms of this earth. But we as the bride of Christ are of another city. Glory to God. And that brings us to the second difference of Babylon. The difference between Babylon and what God has for us is Babylon, the city, not the woman, but the city is the ungodly opposite of the new Jerusalem, which we're going to we're gonna really look at and see in the next chapters coming up. God has a new plan and we're waiting on that plan. And while we're waiting, while we're waiting, we live in a world where Babylon is attractive, where the system is attractive, not only to the world, but also sometimes to you and I as believers. We grew up in the world. In Babylon, we get what we want when we want. And in the end, we find out it's not really what we wanted at all. But in the new Jerusalem, we get what God wants when he wants to give it to us. And in the end, we find out it's what we really wanted all along, right? That's the difference between the two. And we're gonna look at, we're gonna look at God's perspective on this place called Babylon and how God's gonna help us live in a new way while we're in this earth and this world system today. Where, where do you see these descriptions of Babylon in our world today? What does God think about all of this that's happening in our world, in the system of this world? As you take a look at these descriptions of this place, that, 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 where, where God is not honored, but where man is honored, where it's, where it's, where it's all about ourselves pulling ourselves up and, and setting ourselves up against the holy God as the source of power for the universe. What does God think about this? And how do you and I live in this kind of a world today? How do you and I handle the kind of world that we're in? In fact, I was just telling uh, my wife just a couple of days ago, I really am concerned for the America my kids are going to inherit. I'm concerned. And parents, 
when I was my 11-year-old's age, parents then were saying the same thing. Chapter 18 gives us God's perspective of Babylon, and there are four voices in this chapter that we're gonna hear. Can I get into this? Are y'all still with me? Four pronouncements from a powerful angel that help us put human history in perspective by understanding God's perspective of Babylon. Four voices that put this world today in complete perspective. Any world ruler today that sets itself up against God, including our own country, I don't care. I don't care what, God is not partial. Any place in the world that says, we're gonna honor ourselves and we're not gonna honor God. These four voices also put perspective of the world leader of the end times and the power of the end times that will set itself up against God. So if you wanna study it a little further, just read Jeremiah chapter 51 and 52 about the fall of the physical Babylon that will never rise again. There's no city called, physical city called Babylon today, but God said, and it's the reason there is is because God said there never would be. I destroyed the physical Babylon that it will never rise again. Understand, all these chapters are about the fall of a spiritual Babylon. Are you tracking with me? All right? So the first voice, there's four voices. Here's God's perspective on all of it. Voice number one is the voice of condemnation. The voice of condemnation, right quickly. In, in chapter 18, we turn the corner, verses one through three. John said, after this, I saw another angel coming down from the heavens. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. And with a mighty voice, he shouted, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Come on, that's incredibly good news right there. All the power that sets itself up against God one day is going to be fallen. Hallelujah. What's God's perspective of this? Write this down. Very simple, that Babylon will fall. He's known from the beginning. God has known from when they first built that tower in Genesis, from when they first uh, bit into that apple in the beginning of Genesis, from before he created the heavens and the earth, he knew that this was gonna happen. You'll notice that the, there's, there's a phrase all through these chapters, chapter 18, we don't have to take time to get into it. There's a phrase that, that, is, that is no more at all. That phrase, no more at all, is used six times throughout these passages. And it's just saying again and again and again that there's gonna be a complete destruction of this city, this power that sets itself up against God. Now, let's just say this. Let me give you an example. Let's just say that I have in my head two pieces of stock that I got a tip on to invest in. I know that one piece of stock is valued to a lot of people right now. But I also know that that same stock is gonna fall to zero because the company's gonna go bankrupt. But I got this other stock that I also got a tip on and this stock is going to increase without a doubt 30, 60, and 100 fold. You can count on the increase of this stock forever. And let me ask you, those of you who are wise investors, you've been studying the stock market, which one are you going to choose? You see, why do we sometimes fail to invest ourselves in that which we know is guaranteed to increase in the end? I'll tell you why. Because of temptation, because of sin, because we're normal human beings. Sometimes it's also because of our perspective. We don't see it. 
We don't remember that what I'm investing my life in right now is gonna be destroyed one day. Or I can invest my life in something that's going to last forever. How many believe if we could see that more often, we'd invest our lives differently every day, right? God's perspective of this world system that we're surrounded by every day is it's all going to fall someday and you can count on it. Come on, his kingdom is gonna last forever. Can you say amen? Here's the second voice that comes in in John's vision here. And this is the voice of separation. The voice of condemnation and the voice of separation. Right quickly, verse four says, then I heard John said another voice from heaven say, come out of her, my people. Whew. Talking about Babylon. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. Whew. For her sins are piled up to heaven and God has remembered her crimes. What's God's perspective? His perspective is in those words that are written right there. Come out from her, my people. Come out from her. Back in Jeremiah 51, in the fall of the physical Babylon, these same words were repeated. And they, they're, they're actually picked out of the Old Testament. In fact, Jeremiah chapter 51, it says the same thing. God says, come out of her, my people. Talking about the physical Babylon. Run for your lives. Run from the fierce anger of the Lord. He's saying, separate yourselves. Separate. There ought to be something different about us than the people of this world. Separate yourself. In the case of the physical Babylon, that city was going to fall. But in our case as believers, isn't it wise since we know where the world is headed to separate ourselves from everything in this world that we know is going to fall apart one day? Why wouldn't we do that? Why would we hang on? Listen, this, this is a perspective that helps you and I live godly lives and be godly people in the days that we're living in. Separates yourself from the world and its values and its passions. Now, let me get practical about this because there's a lot of weird, wonky stuff on that. Does this mean that you shouldn't watch TV? Shouldn't watch any movies either. Heard somebody say one time, if Jesus comes back and you in the picture house, he ain't getting coming in there to get you. The picture house. <laughs> That's great. Does that mean I can't watch TV? I can't watch movies? Is that what it means? Because, because there may be some worldly values and passions in it. How do you work this out in the real world today? How do you separate yourself from Babylon, come out from her, come away from her? I think this is one of the most confusing things to Christians today. Because the fact is we live in this world. Jesus told us to live in the world, but not to be of the world. How do you do that? Well, there's two extremes, and these two extremes confuse us a great deal. There's one extreme that says, come out from her. That means get away from her. She's horrible. Have no connection with her at all. We used, we used to call people who did this monks, because that's what they would do. They'd go out in the middle of nowhere and build some monastery and sit out there and hum at their belly button for 20, 40 years. <laughs> Not talk to a soul. And seriously, when you ask them what they're doing, they're just separating from the world. 
Is that what God's calling us to do? Do you know people who move into the wilderness and they lived in a month, no connection with the world. One group today that does this are Amish people. And I love them. They make great food. <laughs> they really do. And they're some of the sweetest, kindest people you ever met in your life. But they have completely separated themselves from the world. One of the Amish philosophies is that they can't have anything coming into their society that connects them to the world for this very reason. That's why there's no telephone lines into their communities. That's why there's no power lines into their communities because they believe those are things that connect them to the world. How you deal with roads is still a mystery to me. Your plumbing, are y'all feeling me? They, all roads that connect to the world don't be a, they're not come into their society. They believe to separate yourself from the world means absolutely no connection at all. It also happens to Christians sometimes. We sometimes build this little Christian subculture that's legalistic, honestly. We're not gonna be connected to anything in the world. And anybody who does is a sinner. Oh, into hell. We watch TV, but we only watch the angel network. Glory to God. We listen to the radio, but it's only Caleb. It's only Caleb. The only, you know, the only movies that these people have seen in 10 years are The War Room, Fireproof, and I Can Only Imagine. And you're, if you're in doubt as to whether something is Christian or not, or acceptable or not, then you put a fish symbol on it and it's okay. And then it sinks into like the, the Christian subculture then. Does this sound right? Does this sound like what God wants us to do? If you're gonna separate completely from the world, how are we to be salt and light? Right? Is this really what God means when he says come out from her? That somehow we should build a Christian subculture where we never have any contact with the world or never influencing the world for Christ? Absolutely not. But it is one extreme today. And the other extreme is clearly the other way. You think, well, I don't want to be like those Christians. So we decide just to look like the world. There's really no difference at all between us and the world. We know we have freedom in Christ and we can do anything because we have freedom in Christ. It's grace only. Grace, grace, grace. I can do whatever I want because there's grace. <laughs> right? So we go to the same movies the world goes to. We wanna, we wanna do the same things the world wants to do. We wanna eat and drink the same things the world does and we're pretty much the same. There's no separation. The best picture of that is Lot in the Old Testament when he lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. The interesting thing about Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot, who was the sole believer in that city, is everybody in the city knew that Lot was a believer. Everybody in the city knew that he should be different. But he tried to act like he wasn't. Can I clue you in on something today? You and I as believers say, listen to me. If you're trying to act in your office like you're not a believer, just so you can fit in, let me give you a newsflash. Everybody already knows you are a believer. And all you're doing is discrediting yourself. See, I just believe there's something about Christ coming into our lives that should change us. Come on, somebody. It should change us. It should change our taste. It should change what we do. 
Listen, all the people in your office, they already know it. And let me clue you in. Listen, they feel uncomfortable with the fact that you're not acting like your heart and your passion that's in your life. They feel uncomfortable about it. So if, there's, if those two extremes don't work, then what is the answer as we live in Babylon today? How do you live in Babylon? Because we do, and yet come out from her. Let me give you a, a kind of a picture. One of the pictures is realizing this. Jesus is here with us in Babylon. Yeah. The way to be in the world but not of the world, is to recognize that Jesus came into this world so he could be a part of your world. When you start to see that, it helps you begin to live in a new way. When you realize, listen, that Jesus is with you at all times, he is with you, it gives you a new sensitivity to all the things that are going on around you. I'm telling you, there's a sensitivity that comes into our lives when we begin to recognize the presence of Jesus is there. It'll change what you say. When you really are aware that he is there, it'll change what you watch. It'll change where you go. That sensitivity is an interesting thing to me because isn't it interesting how you'll act one way around your family, but if, if a guest is there, everybody's like, shh, shh. wouldn't say that, don't say that. And why? Because when you're, when you're aware that somebody is there, how many of you know your sensitivity changes? When you're aware that Jesus is there, the fact that he is with you there, it should change the sensitivity in your lives. How many believe that? Say a good amen. He is with you. You think it might change where you go? You think it might change how you think? I'm telling you, recognizing that he is there with you, it changes things. Jesus is here with us. Recognizing that he is with us in Babylon helps us to live as his followers in this system to be in the world, but not of it. So let me protect you from some weird thinking. One of the thoughts that comes into our mind is, Jesus is here with me. That means all I can do is go feed the poor. All I can do is go preach the gospel because that's all Jesus would be doing. Have you read the Old Testament? I mean, have you read the New Testament? Do you know that Jesus spent a lot of time taking care of his family? That's something Jesus would do. By the way, just to bust your religious bubble while I'm at it, the Bible also clearly tells us that Jesus was a party goer. The Pharisees actually called him a party animal. They called him a drunkard. Don't even, don't even let me go there. There was something about his life that had an infectious joy to it. He loved to be around people and not religious people. Jesus loved to hang out with the broken and hurting and dirty and sinful people. Jesus would not have been the one that refused to go to your Christmas company party because there's gonna be alcohol there. I'm not going to that because I'm clearly gonna to communicate to my coworkers that I'm better than them. Yeah, that's what Jesus would do. No, he clearly shows us in scripture, Jesus would actually go to the company office party because he would be in the world, but he would not be of the system that's going on there. 
And he's okay with people using language around him too because what are sinners supposed to do? <laughs> I get really weirded out when I hear Christians say, I can't work at my job anymore. The language, the language that's there, I just cannot handle the language. And I'm like, what are they supposed to talk like? They don't know Jesus. Oh, I'm not going to the company office party. Oh my God, it'll be like a drunk fest. And I'm just not, that's just messes with my spirit. Let me tell you what should mess with your spirit is the people that are there getting drunk need Jesus. That's what should mess with your spirit. So you can go have a Sprite with a lemon in it and talk to people. Hallelujah. Selah. Or even not, whatever. Pharisees call him a party animal, man. To think that being in the world but not of the world means that I can only do spiritual things. I saw Jesus do. Listen, you need to know everything is spiritual when we do it in his name. You should be with your family and enjoy your family in his name. You should go to the ball game in his name. You should go to work in his name. You should go to the grocery store in his name. You better have his name when you go to Walmart or you're going to get all in your flesh. You better, you better put on the Lord Jesus Christ before you go in there. You pump gas in his name. You go to the company office party in his name. You serve on the dream team here in his name. You play ball outside with your kids in his name. Everything is spiritual when you do it in his name. Come on, somebody. Recognize, what am I trying to say? Recognize that he is there with you, right? Jesus knew how to laugh. Jesus, these pictures we see of Jesus sometimes, it's like. Or he's like sitting on a rock, like not one hair out of line. You know, he is completely groomed, just left the barbershop in Jerusalem. Like it's completely lined up. He's got beard oil in. I mean, it's awesome. He's like flowing robe, no wrinkle. He had it pressed, the dry cleaners in, in, on the other side of Jerusalem, like it's there. And he's just sitting on a rock. Like who is this puny, sissified Jesus that we grew up with? My Jesus was a man. And he was sweaty and dirty. And by the way, he wasn't white either. He's Jewish. This European Jesus that we see. He's lily white. Like nobody looked like that there. Like you could braid his hair like he's a Viking or something. He was not Celtic. He was Jewish. He was dark, olive complected, dark hair. Sweaty, man's man. Right? He probably smelled too, I don't know. But he didn't look like that. But Jesus liked to laugh, man. He liked to have a good time. He cut up with people. He was the one running toward the one that everybody else was running from. He was the one that marched to the city and found a little midget named Zacchaeus who was a complete thief and a liar and said, hey man, I'm coming to your house tonight. We gonna partake. Hey, hey, Peter, get him ready. We going to Zacchaeus' house. And you know what? He went and hung out with Zacchaeus and they parted and had a great time and it changed his life 
forever. Changed his life forever. Now, Jesus was the one that would run to the prostitute that everyone wanted to stone, all the religious people wanted to stone and vilify and talk about on Facebook. Oh, yeah. And they wanted to talk and whisper in corners in the church about her. And they wanted to pick stones up. Now, Jesus was the one that ran to her. And he bent down and he would write in the sand while they were talking about killing her. And, and nobody knows what he wrote, but it says in the Bible that they begin to drop their stones from the oldest to the youngest. I, I'm tempted to believe that what he was writing in the sand was the sins of all the ones holding rocks. And I think the older ones dropped the stones first because their list was longer. Because he turned to them and says, he who is with, without sin, throw the first stone. Now, Jesus was the one who ran too. He's the one that embraced the one that everybody wanted to forsake. He was the one that stood off afar when he was calling his disciples. And he was watching Peter on the shore, just fighting and mad and beating people up and cussing people out and smelt like a whole, like fifth of whiskey. I mean, he's just nasty dude, right? And Jesus is the one watching afar off going, the kingdom has need of somebody like that. Oh, I like that. Oh, I know he don't look like much, but you wait till I get done with him. Oh, Jesus would see a Matthew in the city square ripping people off with their taxes and ripping and robbing people and being deceptive and cheating old ladies out of their money and smiling about it and reveling in his evil. And Jesus would watch from afar off under a tree and say, oh, the kingdom could use somebody like that right there. Come on, aren't you glad that he chooses the one the world doesn't want? Aren't you glad that he used you and chose you Right? Jesus, I don't know if, I, I, think G, I think Jesus would be the one that laughed and had a good time and say, hey, let's go out to eat together at the church. I don't know if he'd eat pizza, but I don't know what restaurant he'd choose, but I do know that he would enjoy the fellowship. He went to the home of sinners who didn't even believe in God. He spent time with them. He related to them. He enjoyed being in their presence. Come on. If God wants us to be in the world, he just doesn't want us to be of it. Then we have some soul searching to do to realize that he is with us everywhere we go. First John chapter two actually says this. Do not love the world. Now let me, let me just clarify this. It's, Scripture says don't love the world. It didn't say don't love the people of the world. Don't love the system. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. And then John went on to say, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the part of life, it comes from the Father. It comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. John said, don't love this world. Don't love anything in the world. Let me ask you something this morning. Do you struggle with this? Being in the world, but not of the world? Don't love the world. Don't even love the things in the world. The only way that I've found, and I believe that you can stop loving the world 
and stop loving the things of the world, watch, is to start loving Jesus. Come on, the more you fall in love with Jesus, the less you're gonna be in love with this world. Just trying to say, well, I'm not gonna do that, and I'm not gonna love that, I'm not gonna go out there, it doesn't work. But recognizing who he is. Come on, how many of you know, he is so much better than anything this world has to offer us. Amen? He's so much greater, he's so much deeper, he has eternity to offer us. So why in the world, why, why would I love this world which is not gonna last when I can love him who lasts forever? Why hold on to a world that's going to fade away? Why hold on to Babylon which someday is gonna be destroyed when I have a new city to look forward to? And I have a savior who loves me. That's the voice of separation. There's a couple other voices I'm gonna give them to you real quick. Third, there is the voice of lamentation. You hear this in verses nine through 19, this voice, you hear the voices of, of those who trusted in Babylon, who trusted in a world power. Look at it with me very quickly. It says, when the kings of the earth, in verse nine, when the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her, Babylon, and shared her luxury, see the smoke of her burning. They will weep and they will mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand from afar off and cry, woe, woe to you great city. Watch this, you mighty city of Babylon. Everybody say, in one hour. In one hour, your doom has come. You find God's perspective on this in one phrase, and it comes up again and again. Look at verse 17. Read that with me. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. A few verses later, in verse 19. Come on, say it with me. In one hour, she has been brought to ruin. What's God's perspective on Babylon? Three simple words, and that is this. In one hour. In one hour, it's all gonna be gone. In one hour, all the treasures, all the pleasures that we focus on in this world, all the things we spend our life earning and working toward, in one hour, it's all gonna be gone. Salvation by checkbook is gone. God on demand is gone. Meaning in my money is gone. Religion as a feeling is gone. Self as a God is gone in one hour. Why would I wanna hold on to that? Don't you see that God's trying to help us make sense of how we live in this world today? Why in the world would I wanna hold on to any of that? It helps me live in a new way, the way that God wants me to live in this culture of Babylon. And then there's a fourth voice, and this is, oh, this is so, this, the voice of celebration. Everybody say celebration. It just sort of slips its way into this, 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 vo this voice of, of celebration. In verse 20, all of a sudden, in one hour, she has been brought to ruin. And then it says, rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets. For God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. And so what is God's perspective with this voice of celebration? God's perspective is justice will be done. Celebration, celebration. I believe there's gonna come a day 
We're going to celebrate good times. Come on. Uh, 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 uh. Come on. Sit. Okay, I'll stop. <laughs> Verse 21, follow me. Verse 21. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down and never to be found again. Like a gigantic meteor hurled into the sea, there's immediate turbulence, immediate violence, immediate destruction, but then it's all gone. It's all gone, and you didn't even know it was there. That's how bad and vast the destruction is. There won't even be a remnant of it. Listen, that's what's going to happen with this world system that sets itself up against God. Babel, the beginning of this attitude in Genesis, was a place that talked about what we could do on our own apart from God. Let us make bricks. Let us build a city. Let us make a name for ourselves. But the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, is a place where we're going to really, it's really going to focus on this next week, so don't miss it. We're going to focus on the new Jerusalem. I'm telling you, that to next, you, you don't want to miss next Sunday. No, we're about to run laps around the church. I promise you, it's going to be crazy. No, we're not going to do that. But I'm just saying, you're going to have the want to do that, okay? <laughs> don't do that. But anyway, we're going to talk about the new Jerusalem what we have to look forward to next week, entirely different place than Babylon. It's a place where instead of saying, let us make, we say, God made us. It's a place where instead of saying, let us make a city, we say, God has made us a city called the New Jerusalem. Instead of saying, let us make a name for ourselves, we get to say, God gave us a new name to live with for all of eternity. Instead of saying, let us, make, let us make it to where we won't be scattered, we get to say, God gathers us for all of eternity. You see how the Bible ties together from the beginning to the end? It ties together. In the book of Genesis, we see this place called Babel where everyone was scattered. And here in Revelation at the end, Babylon is destroyed and all of God's people are now gathered back together again. Come on, that's good news, everybody. Come on, do you believe that today? That's good news. It's good news. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Please, no one leave, no one move. Please reverence this moment, just for a moment. Father, I just pray in the name of Jesus. Whew, my goodness. I just pray in the name of Jesus, God, that you help us as your people that are living in a Babylon today, the system of this world. That God, you would help us to loosen our grip from this world, to loosen our grip from the system of this world, to realize that this earth and everything in it is not our home, but to live in the reality that we are in the world, but not of the world. But while we're here, we're called to be salt and light. We are to separate ourselves from the world, but not from the people of the world. That we're to be aware at all times that Jesus is with us. Everywhere we go, help us to love like you love Jesus. Help us to see people like you see them, Jesus. Help us to break the grip of Babylon off of ourselves and off of those around us as we lead them into the reality of Jesus Christ. In your name.
Just remain in prayer for one moment, very quickly, very quickly. I'm not gonna belabor this point. I really believe there's some of you here this morning, God brought you here for this moment right now because he loves you. Some of you are watching online for this moment right now. Because some of you, you honestly can look into your heart and you can see that your heart is attached to this world way more than it should be. And because of that, you would own the reality that my heart is probably further from Jesus than it should be. But today is your day. Because in just a moment of surrender, you can let go of your grip on this world and you can turn toward Jesus and take hold of him, which lasts forever. And I wanna pray with you this morning if that's who you are. I'm not gonna embarrass you. I'm not gonna ask you to come to the front of the church or anything like that. Right where you sit, right where you're watching online, I just wanna lead you in a very simple prayer. And if that is you and you're here and you say, you know what, I want a fresh start with God. I want a fresh start with God. Yes, the Holy Spirit is dealing with my heart. I wanna feel forgiven. I wanna feel his grace. I, I wanna let go of my hand on the world and I wanna grab hold of him. I wanna know, I wanna know that I know that I'm right with him. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if that's you, I want you to lift your hand in the air. Come on, real high and real bold. Come on, be bold. God bless you, bless you, bless you. May I see you, so many of you. God bless all of you. Praise God for you. Let me lead you in a very simple prayer of forgiveness and faith, and we're gonna pray with you as a church family right now. Come on, everyone praying out loud. Dear God, thank you for sending Jesus to die for me. Forgive me of my sins. Wash me clean. I surrender my whole heart completely to you. Fill me with your spirit. Teach me to live for you. Thank you for a fresh start. In Jesus' name, and everybody said a big amen. Come on, we ought to give God some praise today. Come on, that's what it's all about. It's why we do what we do. As you remain seated, please, just for just one more moment, and I'll let you go. The, the restaurant ain't going nowhere, I promise you. But this is a time in our service that we would normally, we normally are generous to God, and we freely receive from Him, and we, so we freely give here at Viber. We love to give here. We love to be generous. We, we love returning His tithe to him and giving offerings above and beyond that even, sowing into the work of God. Thank you, church, for doing that. It's because of your generosity that we're continuing to reach more people each and every week for Jesus. It's why we're able to do the outreaches that we do. It's why we're able to support missions overseas like we are. It's why we're able to help plant churches across this country. It's because of your generosity and your faithfulness. I really believe the word of God when it says that he who refreshes others, he himself will be refreshed. I really believe when you sow in and you're generous to God, I believe God comes behind you and he refreshes and blesses your life. And I believe God can bless you way more than you could ever give to him. Can you say amen, everybody? So church, there's a couple of ways that you can give. Those of you watching online, if you're in the building, if you're new with us, I just go over these ways to make it easy for people. You can participate with us and, and, and partner with us through the envelopes in your seat back in front of you. You can give that way. You can fill that out. Drop it in the offering container as you, as you leave in the exit ways. The ushers are holding them uh, for you. You can just give as you go, or you can give the way most of us do the other two ways, which is online. You can go to vibrantchurch.com slash giving and it has some secure steps for you there. Or you can do it right from your phone. You can text to give. You can text the word vibrant to 77977 and you can give to the Lord that way too. And it's some
some secure ways of doing that as well. We just wanna make it easy for everybody to participate. Thank you so much for your generosity and your faithfulness to God. Would you stand to your feet this morning and let me just pray over you a blessing before we leave. Come on, open your hands and receive this. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he make his face shine on you. May he be gracious to you. May he turn his face toward you and may he give you peace in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Come on, let's go reach people for Jesus. God bless you.